Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. So some of you know me, Nick did, um, probably way too good of an introduction, things that I don't even deserve to be said about me, honestly, uh, but others you don't, so I figured now's probably as good a time as any just to do a short introduction of myself. So I'm John Lugo. Uh, my wife, Christina, and I moved out here about two and a half years ago from Oklahoma. Um, you probably heard of it. Thank you. I <laughs> uh, moved out here with our one-month-old at the time. And uh, we found Mercy Hill after some pretty intense church searching. It wasn't easy to to find the the one place we wanted to call home. And uh, even though we had a brief hiatus uh, after we moved up the peninsula, we're back now. We're back for good. And praise God that we finally came to our senses to come back. Um, But I really am overjoyed to be standing here in front of you today, preaching for the first time. Uh, This is kind of a pilot thing for me, but I just know that God has ministered to me through this word. And I don't pretend that there's anything that I'm going to say today that he's not speaking through me. Um, So I pray the Lord to minister a good word to you as well. And um, that's pretty much it as far as the intro. So if you have your Bibles, let's go and open those things up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we have young strapping men with a double-edged sword of the Word of God. First Samuel 8. If you're new to the Bible, that is in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're almost there. Judges, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 8, we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are now also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, it really is just amazing how much you pursue us. Sinners from the start, and yet you infuse us with this grace. God, that there is constant turning away, that there is constant worshiping of our own heart. And yet there you are, as you always have been. Father, your your word alone is enough to speak to your people. And so um, I just pray that today, that anything that I say, anything that comes out of my mouth, God, that you would be the one speaking, that truly it would be your cross that people would look to um, and not to the words that I'm necessarily saying, God, but the words that you're speaking to them. Lord, continue to grow us, continue to grow us more and more into the image of Christ, I pray. God, I pray that even in, in this particular moment, as we read through the scripture in First Samuel, that we would not look at this as merely something that is that was written thousands of years ago, something that's just descriptive, but something that does apply to us even in this day. Love you, Lord. Thank you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So I'd like to start our time off this morning by asking a question. It's a question that probably isn't commonly asked. So what causes us to shrug at the cross of Christ? I'll ask it again. What causes us to shrug at the cross of Christ? So when we consider all the implications of the cross, right? So the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, the utter rejection of the Father to the Son, the entirety of our debt paid for on that cross. I mean, the the kind of thing that should make us just fall flat on our faces in worship, knowing that we are redeemed, that we are a new creation in his eyes. What causes us to shove that glorious truth to the side? We've all heard this old adage that the grass is greener on the other side, right? Um, And I'd venture to guess that we've all experienced chasing after that greener grass at some point in our lifetime. It could have been seeking that better job, or at least maybe we thought was a better job, and still that quirky manager, that weird coworker is still there, just maybe goes by a different name, right? Um, Or what about maybe even a nicer car? We find out that the same electrical issue still exists, or it still costs so much money to maintain that car. Should have just kept that old clunker that we had from the beginning. Or maybe it's even the place that we live. And I think in Silicon Valley, like this is probably something that hits near to home for a lot of us. Maybe it's just getting that bigger home. Maybe it's that ideal spot to live, or even that super sweet retro 80s rug that's like really ironic, you know? Uh, these, these things are all the things that we turn to. But if we're going to take some, if, if we're going to actually be honest with ourselves here, we have to do some personal reflection as we walk through this text. Because in some way, we all chase, we all pursue, we all place this really high value on, on something that is currently beyond our reach. And we do put it on the thrones of our lives. We may even go as far as demanding that we obtain that thing. And this is where it gets even darker for some of us. But what ultimately happens if we should be so blessed to receive these gifts? So are we satisfied at that point that we've actually received that house, that car, that job? Or is there yet another patch of grass that looks all the greener, but just a little bit further away? Something else, the next thing to seek, the next thing to pursue. Now, look, none of these things are inherently bad, right? We all need a job. We all need to be able to provide for ourselves. We all need a house to be able to live in. We all need a car to be able to commute. So those things aren't, aren't the things I'm talking about. But, but I know we can look at these three examples, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we can identify that patch of grass that we've chased after, that we've pursued, and that we've even demanded from God, and that we've said it's even more important than what God would have for us and how we would spend our time, our finances, and our emotions. So I'll ask it one more time. What causes you, me, all of us here today, to shrug at that cross of Christ. Well, it just so happens that we have a text here that deals with this very idea, and we'll see this idea unfold right before our eyes as we see Israel demand, or Israel's demands to Samuel and the response from Samuel and his warning. But before we even jump into the text, I want to give a little bit of background because when we jump into a seemingly random part of Scripture, it can seem a little bit jarring for some people, um, not really having some of the background. And also, having that background, I think, does help to have us have a flashlight, maybe see things that we otherwise wouldn't see. So how did we get here in First Samuel chapter 8? So for those of you who aren't as familiar with the story of First Samuel, we're introduced to several big characters at the very beginning. Uh, on the one side, we have Elkanah, who's part of the tribe of Israel. He's a Levite, to be exact, and he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. The key thing to know here is that Hannah was barren. She couldn't have any children, and likely was El- Elkanah's first wife, while Peninnah, the second wife, was able to bear many children for Elkanah. As we continue reading, we also see that there was some strife between Hannah and Peninnah. Since Hannah couldn't have any children, Peninnah would provoke Hannah over and over. 
but we still see Hannah with this humble heart going to the Lord and really asking him to intervene in her life. So that's kind of a high level. That's Alcana, Hannah, and Penina. We'll put them to the side for just a minute. We'll look at the other group of people now. So we have Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. All three of them were judges living in Shiloh, which was about 20 miles or so north of Jerusalem. And these three judges would be available for anyone that would come to worship the Lord and give sacrifices. Now, Shiloh is important for all types of reasons, and we're not going to get into that right now just because it's not enough time. But safe to say that we have these three pretty important figures, Eli the judge, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that are also judges, and they're posted Shiloh. So two groups of people, right? The essentials to know for 1 Samuel are this. After being barren, God answers a prayer from Hannah and blesses Elkanah and her with a son, Samuel. That's where he comes into the story. Both her prayer to God, Hannah also made a vow that after Samuel was weaned, she would turn him over to Eli to be raised in the eyes of the Lord. And she fulfills this vow with complete and utter joy. She hands over her son after he's weaned to Eli. So Samuel immediately stands out as this pretty important character in the story, right? So he's born from a barren woman, committed to the Lord before birth, and handed over to Eli the judge once he was weaned. And there's some additional backstory about Eli and his two sons, which are called worthless sons if you look at scripture. Um, and I'll quickly run through those. It's We'll just go through that pretty fast. Um, the first time we actually see this is in chapter 2, where Eli's sons all call, are called worthless men. And Eli is called to rebuke them regarding their heretical acts as judges. God sees the rebuke as too light, so he rejects Eli's household by telling Eli that his two sons will die on the same day. And he'll raise up a faithful judge. And spoiler alert, it is Samuel. And so we see a series of events happen very, very quickly within like these three chapters. And we see that the Lord calls Samuel as a prophet, priest, and king. We see Eli's sons are killed in battle with the Philistines. Um, and Eli dies when the news of his dead sons reaches him. And just that insult to injury for all of this, the Ark of the Covenant, the visible sign of the presence and the power of God, is taken by the Philistines as well because of Israel's foolishness. Now, the ark is eventually returned uh, to Israel by God. He inflicts plagues on the Philistines, and he gets that back. So this is when Samuel comes back onto the scene, when, that, when the ark is returned. He's calling for Israel to repent for worshiping other gods. And as the judge over all of Israel, the judge over the whole nation, Samuel mediates on behalf of Israel to God. And God honors Samuel's call by defeating the Philistines and providing peace over Israel for many, many more decades. So, really cool story. Like, you, you kind of want the story to end there, right? And if you're like me when you read this, you, you hope that things would remain calm, that Israel would wait on the Lord. They've seen these tremendous signs at this point. So, trust in who God has raised up as a judge, this person, Samuel. But, unfortunately... Um, there's a chain of events that happen after that, and that's what gets us into our text today. So we'll break this down into three big chunks. So it'll be verses 1 through 3, where we look at God's supremacy over the judges. Verses 4 through 6, where we see Israel's rejection of God's anointed, which is Samuel. And verses 7 through 9, which is Israel's rejection of God and God's redemptive reign over his people. So there's kind of a lot to get through today. Um, you know, one kind of side note really fast. I think you hear Nick on some Sundays when he's up here, and he says, man, guys, I had to cut. I had to cut a lot out. Otherwise, I would have kept you here for who knows how long, right? And I always think to myself, like, how, how in the world can you have too much content? That just doesn't make any sense. And, uh, and the first time that I went through this, um, an hour and a half into it, I was thinking, like, I don't think anybody wants to hear me speak for an hour and a half, but also that's just, that, that, that is too much. Uh, so I ended up cutting quite a bit out here. So my prayer, my hope is that what's kept um, truly does speak to all of you this morning. So jumping right in. Verse 1. So we see out of the gate in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. 
Now, I realize that the opening summary was just that. It was a summary. But believe me when I tell you that the bulk of Samuel's life and ministry is pretty much passed over until we arrive at that first verse in chapter 8, where it says he's over the hill. And people are considering uh, how he's going to pass, or he's considering how he's going to pass the torture responsibility with his judgeship. And as you think about this, I mean, who better than your sons, especially at a time when trying to find an heir to your line within Israel was just that important. Whenever it's just so valuable to make sure that your name is carried on amongst the tribes and the clans of your chosen people. But also to have this great responsibility of judgeship. Why not pass it on to your sons? They seem qualified, right? They've, they've witnessed the life of Samuel along the way. I mean, this the, up close and firsthand, they've seen, uh, they've been part of Samuel's ministry probably, seeing him set a great example of being a man of God, faithfully sharing God's word with people around him, um, interceding for the people. They just saw this with, with the Ark of the Covenant. And even the esteem that's given to Samuel, he's, he's the first judge in the Bible who's granted truly national status. So before him, it was always regional. It was always by tribe. So the tribe of Dan, the tribe of, um, of Judah, on, on, and on. There were individual judges. He's the first one to rule over the whole nation of Israel as a judge. So we see Samuel, this well-respected judge, attempting to set up a hereditary judgment with his two sons. But the difficulty comes in with whether God raised up that judge or not. So you heard that right, right? So it doesn't have to do with qualifications, experience. The tribe became from nothing. It only has to do with whether God raised up that person to be his chosen vessel. So we see this laid out in two parts of scripture. So, if, if you're listening while well, listen, you, you'll have to listen to this because it is Old Testament um, uh, scripture. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you, that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So again, it's the judges and officers the Lord has given to the people. And again, in Judges, chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them, Israel, out of the hand of those who plundered them. So it, it, would, it would seem strange um, for anyone in Israel, including Samuel, to attempt to set up a hereditary judgment, uh, a judgeship. But it turns out he wasn't the first one. As a matter of fact, Eli, the person we we're talking about right before Samuel, um, he appointed his two sons as judges as well. And we read more about Eli's two sons in chapters 2 and 4, where they're called out for their worthlessness, condemned by God, and eventually put to death in chapter 4, verse 11. All the while, Samuel has a front row seat to everything that's going on. The egregious actions by Eli's sons, the, the prophecy from God to Eli and his family, and ultimately the death of Eli's family and Eli himself. So you would think that this would be a memory that sticks in the mind of Samuel for a very, very long time. And so it's easy for us to say, come on, Samuel, is, is your memory that bad? You just saw this with Eli. He appointed his two sons as judges, not God. And what happened? Do you, do you want a similar fate for your sons? But, but let's not move too quick to judge him here. We have to revisit the question that we started off with. And, and that question, if you remember, was... What causes us, and in this case Samuel, to shrug at the cross of Christ? And I suppose in this case, like, Christ hasn't come yet. So the question for Samuel would more be along the lines of what causes Samuel to disobey a directive from God with appointing judges? Does he think that he can find a better candidate? Is he concerned about Israel's fate after he dies? He is older. And these questions are all are both pretty leading, but safer to say that Anything that I would share would just be assumptions and conjecture, um, but we do, know, we do know a few things. So one is that Moses was a Levite. If you know anything about the life of Moses, did some pretty amazing things, and we won't list all that stuff out. Eli as well was a Levite, and he served Israel well, apart from how he handled the, the lack of rebuke for his sons. And then you have Samuel, who's also a Levite. And probably known as the most, most faithful earthly judge that Israel witnessed. 
So with, with such a rich history within this tribe of Israel, maybe Samuel is trying to keep the judgeship here. Again, just my own assumption, but just one possibility. And even with all the right accolades and the right intentions, uh, Scripture shows us that judgeship, much like kingship, which we'll get to in a minute, can only be given by God because it has to do with the posture of the heart. Are you seeking this post because you look to fulfill God's purpose or your own? You see, let's run with one idea, one idea here, and, uh, and maybe, so maybe Samuel was concerned about the fate of Israel after his death. And so he wanted to ensure that, that judges were put in place. And that's a, that's a pretty noble cause. I can, I can get on board with something like that. Um, you know, I want to protect my people from persecution, loss of land, successorship, on and on. But inherently, isn't, isn't this seizing the idol of control? Perhaps thinking I can see the landscape better than the one who created it. Let me act without first, first consulting God. So it's not that we don't act. It's when your action takes place. Is it before you've gone to God and you've consulted him or after? There's one theologian that's done quite a bit of writing on idols of the heart. And he says this. I'm increasingly persuaded that there are only two ways of living. One, trusting God and living in submission to his will and his rule. Or two, trying to be God. There's little in between. And as sinners, we seem to be far better at the latter than we are at the former. So think about that, right? So we're either trusting God and submitting to his will and rule, or we're trying to be God. And what we see with Samuel's sons is they're, they're going the direction of the latter. Excuse me. They're, they're given judgeship by Samuel, not God, over a place called Beersheba, which was on the southwesternmost end of the nation of Israel. It wasn't part of Samuel's visitation circuit. It was too far for him, so he didn't get to make it down there terribly often. Um, and the city was also in transition from being a temporary settlement to a permanent settlement. So it had this really small population, maybe a few hundred people. Um, and when Samuel's sons arrived, really some of the first houses were just being built in this place. So Samuel appoints his sons as judges over a small area that's young and impressionable. He can't provide a lot of oversight, a lot of counsel for his sons. And he doesn't really have any means by which to obtain regular updates of how they're doing. And the first bit of word that Samuel hears back is that his sons are going wayward. And actually, the acts that his sons were committing were in direct contradiction to what we read about in Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, where God says to the judges, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. And these were the exact things that Samuel's sons did. They perverted justice, accepted bribes. So the two things you weren't supposed to do. So their idolatry is out of control. They neglected all the teachings of their father. But above all else, even apart from their sin, which would bar them from maintaining the judgeship, they were not raised up by God. You see, in, in all of God's wisdom, he knew the temptations of the human heart. He still knows the temptations of the human heart. So he issued laws and warnings to his people. We can read them all in his word. But especially to his leaders to remain on guard with what the world would tempt them with. Now that is a true and faithful judge there. A faithful judge that would show us the pathway to peace, to contentment, to steadfastness, all within his holy word. So not leaving, not, oh, and also not leaving the closed-hand issues open for discussion, but, but rather drawing that line in the sand of what the world would say is okay and putting that in stark contrast with what God calls us to. So like we said earlier, we're either trusting God and submitting to his will, will and rule, or we're trying to be God. Um, I, I think a few weeks back when I came home from work, 
So my wife, Christina, gets to stay home with our daughter, Josephine. And uh, it's, it's really just something that we're, we're overjoyed that, um, that she's able to do. And one of the things that they get to, get to go do through in, throughout the course of the week is they go swimming. So Josephine has swim class. And this girl is just crushing it. I mean, I, she's swimming better than me these days, honestly. And she's all of two and a half. So just really impressive to see like, her, um, her growth and, and how well she's doing. And one typical question I ask whenever I get home uh, from work is, hey, how did today go? What did you guys do? And as we're eating dinner, one of the stories that was shared was, uh, was a swim class. And it was a story where Josephine was sitting on the wall. So they have a little bench seat for the kids to sit on. Um, there's a total of three little kids in the class. And there were these uh, two little girls that I think knew each other. They seemed a little bit unruly and kind of like always trying to do exactly what the teacher asked them not to do, right? Um, so it, if you guys have ever had kids, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and, so, and so Josephine, like she's new to this class. She's been in and out for a couple of times. And, uh, and whenever the teacher would take Josephine, she'd constantly be looking back. Just stop doing that. Don't jump off that. Don't put your head in the water. Like over and over. Like you two girls, please behave. Um, so when Josephine went back onto the wall and she took one of the two girls, noticed that the girl that stayed there with Josephine was still a little bit incorrigible, but but not as bad. She didn't have her partner in crime at the time, right? Um, but still, she looked over at Josephine and thought, "Hey, maybe this person can come along. Maybe this person would be willing to." participate in what I want to do that's against what my teacher's asking me to do. And what's really cool, we, we take no credit for this whatsoever. Um, when the little girl was trying to get Josephine to do the things that she wasn't supposed to be doing, uh, Josie sat there and looked at her, blinked, turned, turned her face the other way, and uh, waited for her teacher to come back. So really, really cool story, right? Like just, just amazing to hear that. When I heard that, like my eyes kind of welled up. I put my hand on Josie and I'm like, hey, kiddo, like that is that is amazing. Like I'm I'm so impressed with what God is doing in your heart. I'm so impressed that the pressures of this world and what people are drawing you into, like you're not succumbing to. That's awesome. And it's in the middle of dinner, so she looks at me and just goes, Yep. And uh finishes eating her food. So Good talk, kid. Thanks. <laughs> and I look over at my wife. She goes, we already talked about that. So, <laughs> so it's great. Like that's, that's a message that's, that's said over and over. Um, and Josephine gets to hear that over and over, that the actions that, that we take that are even remotely good is because Christ is working through us, because the Holy Spirit is there in that moment. And he is the one that is helping us to see the light that we need to be living in and standing in. Um, now, that's a really elementary example, right? Sitting on a wall in swimming class. But it, it doesn't, the, the analogy really doesn't run out. I mean, there, there's always some temptation that people are trying to draw us into. And we see it here this morning as we jump further down into verse 4. So, let's go to get back to our narrative. Um, Barring any sort of intervention at this point, Samuel would be the final judge unless if God raised up another one. So what's Israel's response to Samuel being that he shows no sign of stepping down from being the judge and the bad news of his sons has yet to reach him? So let's go to read verses four through six again. Uh, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. First of all, just to call someone old like that is just wrong. I mean, I just, I, I just feel like that would be a reason to... Anyway, so, so we land at this crossroads in scripture, and, and it's a pretty significant crossroads. God has given Israel judges for over 400 years, 400 years that he's done this, right? Um, with Samuel currently holding the office of judge. But the elders, the, the leaders of Israel, um, the people that make decisions on behalf of all the tribes of the people they represent, are demanding a king to rule over their nation. But why? So they can be like other nations, 
so they can be like the people around them. I mean, just to be clear, God intentionally, intentionally set Israel apart. They were his people. He didn't want them to succumb to the ways of the world. And here they are pointing to all the bordering nations and saying, give us a king. We want to be just like them. So what's the deal with Israel's desire to look like the other nations and also the rejection of Samuel, right? In order to understand this demand from Israel, we, we have to paint a picture of how Israel has responded to God and judges over time and really try to get inside the heads of these elders, these leaders. So prior to Samuel, there have been 13 judges that have ruled over different nations within Israel, with some judges ruling concurrently over the course of those 400 years. So sometimes you had two judges, three judges at the same time, and then a span of time where there weren't any judges. The main purpose of these judges was to dispense God's justice, his merciful faithfulness, um, and also to deliver his people using a military. So that was kind of the, the overall purpose of Judges. Um, because God was the one that raised them up, there would be the span of time where the post was empty, and this would usually be the time where the people of Israel would rebel against God, Yahweh, and pursue other pagan gods, little g gods. And so God, Yahweh, would punish Israel for their sin, Israel would repent, God would assign another judge, rinse, repeat, over and over and over for over four Hundred years this happened. So when the judge was in place, things were good. Israel was well defended and they prospered and they would praise God. But when the judge was absent, Israel would turn back, turn their back on the Lord and follow the passions of their hearts. So that's kind of the historical part of judgeship. Appointed by God, sometimes there were gaps in time from one judge to another. And the nation would only take military action as God ordained. So, kind of the background. Let's go ahead and jump into the elders' heads a little bit and see what they're thinking. So we fast forward to the present, to our actual scripture here. Even though Israel has experienced peace for decades with Samuel's judge, they don't want that additional large span of time, right? So they look back on these 400 years, now they've wised up, and they've said, we don't want this to be repeated. We're tired of this. We, we want there to be some continuation from one person to another, and understandably so. There, there's probably anxiety going on in the elders' heads. Um, also, the apparently imminent return to the dismal pattern of failed judgeships. We saw that with Eli and his two sons and how they failed. Now we're seeing it with Samuel and his two sons and how they were appointed. Obviously, the judge, as God appointed that person, is not fit to then appoint a hereditary judge to follow him. So there has to be someone else that can do this, someone else that's qualified that God didn't appoint. But really the lion's share of what we're looking at here likely has to do with this yearning desire. We see this in scripture, right? This yearning desire to match the kingship that the rest of the surrounding nations have. And Israel observed many of the bordering kings around them, and, and this is what they witnessed. The kings generally had limitless power and authority. No longer are kings just overseeing a region or a tribe like most of the judges, but now their authority spans the entire nation. They can consider all the people and what's best for all of Israel. And kings claim divine support for their rule from God, meaning kings would typically point to God as justification for a decision that was made on behalf of their nation state, regardless if they conferred with God or not. Whereas judges waited for God, would only take the actions he regarded as good. Finally, kings were military leaders, which means a standing army was created, the nation's infrastructure was built up to protect and deliver their people from oppression, um, as well as to acquire new lands. But judges did not command a standing army. They only assembled armies as they were directed by God. So let's take a look at verse 5 and bundle these two scenarios together. Right? So Samuel's old, with his sons not being fit for the role along with this growing trend, fad, whatever you want to call it, um, of, of king nation-states all around you. And so this chant catches on amongst the elders, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king, over and over and over. And this way, 
they're never without an earthly leader again. This way they can take more control of their destiny. They can seize it. And to take it a step further, these elders would have even been knowledgeable about Jewish law, right? So they probably would have cited Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 17. So this is what it says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell on it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. From among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So what's the problem? God says, yeah, you can, you can appoint a king that I choose. And what's Israel doing? They're wanting a king appointed because they're choosing it. They're demanding it. But this text looks like God planned there to be a king from the beginning. He even encouraged it. So, so why does it seem like verses 5 and 6 are so combative? Um, it has to do with the fact, we mentioned it already, that God knows the heart of his people. And he knows that the king that they have in mind won't fit these descriptions in verses 16 and 17. The thing about the horses, the gold, the silver, the wives, all these things, he knew. He knew his people. He knew their hearts. And inevitably, we see the king that we choose for ourselves looks good, but ends up being the exact opposite of what God expects. So that's kind of the background scene of what's going on. That's what's going on in the elders' heads. So now imagine being in Samuel's shoes. You're the anointed one. You're the only, the only judge to serve the entire nation of Israel. And you're still actively performing. You're still traveling, excuse me, to perform your God-ordained, literally God-ordained duties. And most people's natural inclination is to take something like this comment personally, right? You're old and your sons are doing a terrible job. Like immediately, I would probably put my hands up. And I think my open hands would probably turn to fists, <laughs> and, and there would be some sort of a confrontation at that point. But instead, instead, what we see with Samuel is that his response is to what? Go to prayer. He goes to prayer to the Lord. He's able to hear these grievances from the elders, some that are taken extremely personal, and remain totally in tune with what the Lord would have for him and respond in just this extraordinarily holy manner. Now, to set the record straight, um, Samuel's, Samuel's not at all pleased with the elder's proposal. Literally, the text tells us that this is evil in the sight of Samuel. And so, simply put, Samuel knows that the request is wrong, it's sinful, and that he's more than likely fuming, grieving for them, something that's a negative emotion there in that moment. But he does see the next layer underneath their request. The idolatry that exists, that Israel is favoring the seen over the unseen. They're favoring immediate gratification over patient endurance. They're favoring security with a hereditary earthly king over an infallible heavenly king. So can you see yourself as part of the story? I, th I think it's probably easier for us to maybe begin to kind of put ourselves into this text, that we here today are also being tempted to prefer the things that we can see, smell, touch, as opposed to the invisible help of the unseen God. Just to make it a little bit more real, so how many of us probably feel safer with knowing that our bank account is in the green versus relying on God's promises, right? Um, or how many of us live as if other men and women are more worthy recipients of our love and our trust than God? You can hear the I love you back immediately. You can get that warm, open embrace there in the moment. You see, this is, this is part, the part of the story that's it's truly a mirror, it's not descriptive, but it's prescriptive. 
the rash demands that Israel makes, their, their curt words for a faithful judge, the blindness to their offense to God, their impatience, their worry, their finger pointing, their desire of approval, all of it, every last bit of it, is the common denominator that demonstrates how sick the, tr- the human heart truly is. And we should humbly align closely to all of it. I mean, really, we're, we're not all that different than Israel. The time period is different, but the temptations are all the same. What's the king you're demanding for? And how far will you go for it? So unfortunately, our story in 1 Samuel only gets a little bit worse before it gets better. Um, but rest assured, we, we do see God's grace being pushed forth, as he always does in his word, towards the end. So we left off with Samuel praying and waiting for the Lord to weigh in before taking any actions on, on the matter. So now we jump down to verses 7 through 9. And here it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they all, so they are also doing to me. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So we see the Lord give three directives. Heed the people's request, but warn them solemnly and inform them of the consequences associated with their demand. If I were reading this for the, for the first time, I would, I'd probably be a little bit shocked and appalled and, and, and I don't know, that God, it seems like God is kind of bending to man's will. You know, like he, man has approached God and, said, and demanded something that is against what he wants for them. And he's doing it. It just, it, it seems a little bit wrong. It, it sits uneasy, at least for me. Um, but, but when you think about how many times that this is true in our daily lives, where we witness rejection amongst people, or even in the receiving end of that rejection, how many times is that problem truly horizontal, which is right in front of you, right? How many times is that problem right here? versus it being a vertical problem with God. And he sees that in his people. He sees that there's something that I need to do to be able to connect with them. I need to bring them back. I need to find a way to show them that I am the true living God. So in verse 7, we see that God is clear. Samuel is a chosen vessel of grace. And by the people of Israel rejecting Samuel, they have actually rejected the great I am by making their demand for a king to Samuel, that the Israelite leaders are implying that God has been less than successful in bringing victory and that, Israelite le- and that uh, somehow an earthly king will do a better job. But the fact of the matter is that God was the one that raised up each one of those judges. He was the one that raised up those military leaders. He was the one that threw the opposing armies into confusion. It was his victory from the beginning and yet, these leaders are saying, no, the victory is ours. The blindness of Israel causes them only to believe that a king with a trained standing army at his command will level that playing field and enable them to successfully defend their land. But when we, when we kind of flatten out that, that rhetoric, Israel believes their problem is a political problem. And consequently, they opt for a political solution, when in reality, it's, it's a spiritual problem. It's not political. That's, and the spiritual problem has gone on for centuries, and God has seen it for centuries. He's painfully aware that even with the warnings against kingship, the warnings he's issuing Samuel to give, that Israel will not relent. They will still choose what it is that their heart desires. And that really only this political solution is what's going to solve the problem for them. So we'll look at one more thing in the text, and then we'll wrap things up. So I want to, I want to look at how God used the people's rejection as a means by which to still pursue them. We see above, we see that in the text, um, that God recalls that this rejection isn't new. 
from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day. He's recounting all the centuries that this has happened. He's not surprised. He's not surprised that this is the response from Israel. It was in Israel's nature to go against God's way and find their own way. And yet, there he is, still right next to Samuel, still right next to his people, unmovable, unshakable, ever-present. God has seen the unbelief of his people over the course of centuries, and he's heard the groaning from Israel. He's experienced being shoved aside over, uh, over and over again, only to come right back to this very spot where he is working out his plan. He, he's not thwarted by human failure. No human can get in the way of God's plan. And even though Israel rejects God, his grace triumphs in the face of our rejection by him bringing us into his kingdom. And even more, he brings them a king after his own heart. So it's, it's at the cross where we see that our rejection of him and the triumph of grace are brought into one. Our rejection of him as king becomes a means of his bringing down his kingdom to earth. We refuse his care, but he knows how badly we need it. I mean, that's just a beautiful picture. It's just a beautiful thing to, to be able to point to and to say, like, that's, that's a God. That's a God that I can, I can turn to in any moment and despair and joy any moment of my life. So we're not going to read them today, but still in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, um, Samuel gives the warning to his people about the kings. And, and it's in these verses where we see the word take take said over and over it said six times the king this earthly king will take your sons he will take your daughters he will take a tenth of your grain he will use them all for his own bidding six times that the word take is written here and unfortunately this is what happens this earthly king Saul did not fulfill many of the hopes that the Lord set out for Israel's kings and while many promises are fulfilled, are fulfilled in King David, the true fulfillment of every promise comes at the cross of King Jesus, son of David. You see, it's on the cross that Jesus, Jesus also took and took and took. But not like the warning from God we read about in 1 Samuel, it's actually quite the opposite. And Jesus took our sins, he took our shame, he took our debt, he took everything. Not a single bit of our stain was left. We were left looking white as snow. He took every last bit of our ugliness so that we could become righteous and have full access to our Heavenly Father. And because of that sacrifice on the cross, there's this glorious promise that's now extended to, to God's people in this room. It's not just for the nation of Israel. And we find that promise in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the ex excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So today can kind of be summed up in, in two approaches, and, and there's two scriptures that, that depict this. Uh, one's in Jeremiah and one's in, uh, in the book of John. And they align pretty closely. Jesus actually refers to this verse in uh, Jeremiah 2, and it's verses 12 and 13. It says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so for, for those of you that know at the time, these cisterns were holes that they would dig into the ground and try to store water into this muddy clay. And so... Would it be able to hold this water? And if it did, it was something you really wanted to drink. And yet people would turn to these cisterns to actually try to hold the water they would try to consume during that day. 
So God is calling this out. He's saying that you can, you can continue to go the route of Israel. You can dig that hole into the ground without any hope of sustaining life, whether that's physical life or spiritual life. Or you can look towards John 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of, of, of living water. So if, if you haven't come to the cross of King Jesus, I would, I would bid you to come. It's a place where he wants to hear from you. It's a place where he wants to make a nation. He wants to build his people. He wants to build that tribe, not just of Israel, but of all the people So I would ask you one more time as well, what, what is it that causes you to shrug at the cross of Christ? After hearing all these things today, after hearing Israel's rejection, after thinking about idolatry and, and the things that may have come to mind for us individually, what causes us to shrug at the cross of Christ? Because for me, when I pause and I actually think about it, I am in awe at the grace, the wonder, and the majesty that radiates from that rugged cross. But it's those moments when I'm not pausing. It's those moments when I'm just moving to the next thing that I can feel so detached from wanting to turn to Jesus. So I would pray that in those moments, for you all, for me, for all of the people that we would call brother and sister, that we would pause you would think about how is it that I can not shrug at this cross, this glorious, magnificent cross. Let's pray. Father, um, we know that there is a day that's coming. There's a day that's coming where all will be fulfilled in Jesus. And God, we await anxiously to be with you. In the meantime, God, we have thousands and thousands of things that are pulling away our attention, our heart. And God, as we even just look at Israel, he's these small things that can amount to this huge request, this huge request that defies and goes against what you would have, what you would will for our life. God, I pray that you would show us how to slow down, to pause, to not look at the cross and say, meh, but to look at the cross and and to know that every sin, every last bit was taken by Jesus. Each nail, each thorn, each second. And that even separation from you, God, the separation from his father, had been in community with all his life, that he was willing to make that sacrifice for us. God, may we never take that lightly. May we never see that and say, meh. We would say that and say, wow. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.